Welcome to Loving the Snow Life, the podcast where our snow resort obsessed mums talk everything snow. You'll learn stuff including ski school, is it worth it? How to get the best travel deals, what snow gear to buy, sustainability and much more. Some mums love the Kardashians. Our mums love ski documentaries. Between them, they've skied 84 snow resorts and they've dragged us to plenty of them. We're not complaining, we love it. Over to you, mums. Tony Harrington is a world-renowned photographer in the big wave surfing and big mountain skiing space. We're excited to talk to him today about his world adventures and his projects and his new art gallery opened in Australia's Mount Buller. And welcome. Hey there, how's it going? Awesome. Yeah, good. How are you doing? Yeah, great, thanks. Just sitting up here in Mount Buller waiting for the snow. Tell us about your exhibition on the weekend. Yeah, I had a fantastic um, weekend. Um, I've done some pretty crazy things in my life, but uh, this is probably one of the biggest of them, and that was opening a gallery. You know, it's always been a lifelong dream to do something like that and something which I had no idea of if it would even happen or if it did happen when and then I was blindsided by the opportunity two years ago to open up a gallery. So um, we've worked really hard and um, it was amazing. It blew me away. It went above and beyond the look and feel that I could have ever imagined So and is extremely well received. Photography in the exhibition is absolutely stunning. Lots of animals and black and whites, and I love the chairlift one. Put it this way, I never get bored because I shoot big waves, big mountains, right down to kids, to landscape, to nature, to um, families. I mean, every single one of those subjects which I get to shoot, I mean, it's very inspirational. So um, it's good. It's great, great opportunity to mix it up with the work that I shoot. So, yeah. Well, you're definitely world-renowned for your photography in the skiing and surfing industry. It's kind of amazing. What's the trickiest place you've been in, do you think, taking photos? Uh, the trickiest place in shooting mountains is yeah. definitely Alaska. I've been up to Alaska more than 25 times now. and So jealous. What I, what I have to do, where I have to ski and the situations – I've got myself into um, with, 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 you know, even without having a 18, 20 kilogram backpack of camera gear on it, you know, just normal skiing, it, it's pretty scary. But then you add all the camera gear and go, crikey, how am I going to get out of this one? But I've made it back so far. And, um, thank God. and waves, <laughs> thank God. And in the giant waves, you know, I've had a jet ski die on me and been taken out by 50 foot waves of, Oh, shit. Um, I, I still swim out at Pipeline um, no. a, a fair bit. I've, I pick my days for sure, but, uh, you know, you're always dodging bullets there for sure and big waves and shallow reef. Um, so that gives me the rush, you know, like wow. uh, my, my, my background is a, as a surfer and big mountain skier and um, I don't charge as much as I used to, but... With photography, I still am. So, you know, I'm still keeping that dream alive. That yeah, that's alive. awesome. 
So in the water, do you have the cameras on or one camera on one arm attached to a strap? Yeah, basically you do. You um, uh, you swim out with one holding a camera in one hand with the leash and it's really good incentive not to let go of that camera because if it does, it swings around like a, you know, like a steel ball on the end of the chain. And if that hits you in the head, that can be really dangerous. But uh, So what made you do the photography? Like you're obviously good at, to get yourself in Alaska, you're a good skier. To get yourself out of pipeline, you're an amazing surfer. So is it because you were like, oh, okay, I'm not charging anymore, I'm going to start doing photography? Or you were just skiing and going, wow, I want to capture this in every moment? Is it- well, that, that's, that's a really good question. Um, growing up, I was always, like most people, inspired by reading magazines. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we would get home from school and you'd race down to the local news agent and get the latest surfing life or tracks or surfing world to come out all three of them then everyone's just sitting down the beach flicking through pages and reading the stories and looking at the photos and you hear all the elders above you in our in our peer group you know just talking about trips and adventures that they've been on and it's very inspirational stuff and then for some reason I picked up a camera I had no idea why I just picked it up and um started taking photos of surfing and um, I was always the f- one of the very first surfers in the water before the sun came up every morning and uh, by, you know, 7 o'clock the, the lineup's getting quite crowded so I'd paddle in, grab my camera, swim out and then start shooting. And um, then after just doing that a couple of years, people were going, Harry, why aren't you sending these in- photos into magazines? I'm going, crikey, you know, they're not not all that good but then I sent my first roll in I got a couple of photos published the second roll had a front cover and then Uh over Uh 250 front covers down the track I'm still as inspired as I was when I was a little kid you know so um, yeah and just just inspiring people you know I'm, I'm very fortunate to with majority of the athletes that I work with, they're some of the best in the world and they're very focused and very talented. And uh, to be re- to be around people who take the life in that in the situation and lifestyle that serious, I mean, God, it's it's just amazing, you know. Um, yeah. It is true. They are they are loving life all the time, aren't they? They're, but with um rules in place and when when you are you know like when you are taking a photo of you know the one that's behind you when you're standing there and taking that photo of Alaska those people have definitely done lots of background knowledge before to get into that situation for you to take the photo and oh a hundred percent it's it's a journey yeah do you help out with that do you go okay I think you should probably get down that spine is that or you to go no no I um I always leave it up to the athlete to make the call. And if I I don't work with people with Kodak Courage, I've worked with people with Kodak Courage and I oh, won't yeah. work with them again. Um, I like that when, term. <laughs> when when, when um, people do stuff for the camera to try and make themselves look good, that's when they're not going to get look good. That's when they're going to get hurt and that's where it's going to put them in a situation and, and myself in a situation which 
we just don't want to be in, you know. So um, when it comes to doing stuff in Alaska, I let the athlete, you know, firstly, I know who they are, what, what they're capable of doing. And then it's up to me to make them look better than they think they are. Because there, there, are, there are athletes <laughs> out there, you know, who are the best in the world. And if I took a photo of them and it didn't, look as good as what they thought it would be I'll probably never get to work with them again so <laughs> yeah. so my focus is getting a shot which makes them look as good or better than they think they are and by using the landscape you know having an eye for a landscape shot and then incorporating the action into it it's uh yeah that's that's my philosophy on it anyway I love yeah. it yeah. so if I'm going off a two-foot jump winding down the windows I'm going to look good if you're shooting me. <laughs> oh, look, I'll do, I'll do my best. As long as it's only two foot, it's not four foot. And uh, it helps if we've, if we've got a nice backdrop to like like anywhere here on Mount Buller. So <laughs> yeah. when you are taking those extreme shots, are you always in a helicopter, like that beautiful photo in the background of you, you know, right now? Oh, no, that one. Oh, that's actually of Jeremy Jones up in Alaska. Um Nice. No, um, shooting from helicopter, we do it occasionally, but it's very expensive. Um, it, it is a unique angle for sure, but I do like to get put on the snow and ski into position and using, you know, whatever lens I need to really capture the essence of where we are. So, um, yeah, there, there, there's rooms for both types of shooting for sure. Mm. On average, how much do you take with you to get shots in the snow? Like, um, When I'm shooting stills, there's probably around 12 to 15 kilograms of camera gear and then, you know, you've got your shovel, beacon and probe. Um, I've got, you know, just a little medical kit and a little blanket in case someone gets hurt. Thankfully, we've only had to use that once. Um, when I'm filming, when I'm making a documentary on a, on a, a film, film project, then there's a lot of the time there'll be no poles. You'll have a heavy tripod in one hand. Uh, I'll have a bag in the other hand with uh, some batteries in it. Then on, you know, you've got 20, 22, yeah, a good 20 kg of equipment on your back. And then right. you're still skiing these big crazy lines, except you just ski them a lot slower. With no poles. With no I'm poles. <laughs> and your your life at the moment it it sounds amazing to travel between victoria australia and jackson hole and hawaii tell us a bit about that how you manage that kind of lifestyle well people often say to me harrow where do you live and uh, there's quite a simple answer it's predicted predictably nomad i um i'm based in mount buller for four months of the year um, I own a jet ski at the bottom of the mountain, so if there's a big swell in South Australia or, or Victoria, we can just take off for um, a couple of days, get that, and come back to the resort because uh, winter oh. is when the best waves break down there. Then at the end of the season, um, I'll spend a couple of weeks up on the Gold Coast, which is, I guess, that, uh, my sister was the one who got married and had kids young, and uh, they've flown the coop. And uh, just her and her husband have been out, so there's a spare room for myself and Rella, my partner, to go and spend some time in. And then 
I try and go to Indo just to get surf fit again for a couple of weeks before I hit Hawaii in the early northern winter. Um, I own a truck and got a lot of friends, family there. And then um, I go across to Jackson Hole at the end of January when all the snowpack builds up. Yeah. And uh, I own an old four-wheel drive there, which is leave at a friend's place. And then we'll just road trip through North America, storm chasing. Yeah. And then um, uh, finish up in Alaska uh, for the springtime. And uh, before I come back to Australia at the end of April, and then that gives me one to two months to chase surf around Australia, the east coast of Australia predominantly. Um, That's a really good time of year for swells and the occasional trip across to Europe, storm chasing. I mean, I guess for the type of work, type of, work that I shoot is all weather dependent so I need to be where the biggest storms are in for, for biggest waves or biggest snowfall so that yeah. sounds awful kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> what a life love it yeah. love it oh my goodness yeah sounds pretty incredible doesn't it oh, Jackson Hole has got to be one of my favorite places to ski ever and just actually my favorite my favorite restaurant in the world is the Snake River Grill. <laughs> oh, love I don't know, I don't know why. I just it sticks out. Well, I do. It's incredible steaks, right, and just great wine and yeah. <laughs> just the, the destination, the history, and the authentic authenticness of the Wild West and the mountains. And I can run this off the top of my tongue because just ten minutes ago, I just finished writing a feature on Jackson Hole. And, and Grand Targi for Chill Factor magazine. But, uh, yeah, so uh, since you brought that up, I, I saw myself sitting back in the mangy moose. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the mangy moose. Oh. And how good is that, the power of the, speaking of Chill Factor magazine, the Kickstarter that, yeah. that, that just happened and that you successfully managed to get that going? Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yes, well, Chill Factor Ski Magazine, this is our 21st anniversary and um, unfortunately most of the brands weren't, be, weren't able to support us this year and I'd be buggered if I was going to let COVID-19 stop us from uh, producing, you know, something which is very passionate to us. I mean, we don't make any money from it. We, um, we just want to produce something which is really cool and cool for the Australian snow industry and there's Reggae Ellis, the founder and editor, um, myself as senior photographer. We started back in 2000, yeah, yeah year 2000. And then there's my partner, Rilla, and um, acclaimed and accomplished skier, Watkin McLennan from here on Buller. We had the opportunity to buy it two years ago and keep, you know, keep the dreaming alive for, every, for everyone. And um, so... This year we're thinking, crikey, we're not going to be able to have a magazine. So I thought, hey, let's throw this out on Kickstarter. And we smashed it. You know, we got so much great support. So I've just finished two weeks of round-the-clock working on opening up the gallery and straight into designing and laying out the magazine. So I've got another 12 sleepless nights to get through. Absolutely. Um, And get that to the printer and then I... And then the snow can fall. And, you know, it's, I'm so glad that that all succeeded because you're so right about 
magazines and the role they play in our lives because, I mean, Chill Factor magazine is one that when you buy a copy, you don't want to give it away. You don't throw it out. You just keep it there. You refer to it for the next couple of decades, don't you? And it, it's Even though the information is written at a certain time, it's certainly timeless. Look, it is. Um, and I wear a couple of different hats, I guess, you know, firstly as a photographer, as a publisher. Uh, I'm working with, always working with advertising agencies and I can't believe it bewilders me of how many people, um, marketing people, are obnoxious, I don't think, maybe obnoxious or just blind to the fact of how powerful a good magazine is for marketing. You know, so many people say, oh, magazines are dead. I mean, you can't- I mean, how, yeah, that, you know, that's, that, that, how negative can you be? You yeah, know, good, 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 good magazines will not die, you know, and uh, it I will be a all, shame if we picture a world with no beautiful magazines like Chill Factor, no, no magazines with beautiful shots. That's a sad world. We're going to oh, miss it. It is because the photo tells us exactly. a thousand stories, uh, a thousand words, you know, and you add a caption to that. Um, to, to, to any photo, just a simple caption to let you read more into that photo and, uh, you know, it's very educational. Yeah. yeah, but who doesn't want to pull it out, you know, and put the poster on the wall? <laughs> Go yeah. back to my youth, you know, obviously surfing life tracks. Like I grew up on the Gold Coast, so my I was always my dad reading, you know, and we were doing it too and it was just like pull it out, put the poster up on the wall, you know, and then as you get, you know, down into your ski life, your ski industry life, you pull it out of chill factor and you put it on your bloody staff accommodation wall and, like, who? That's got to come back. We can't lose that. That's Australian heritage. <laughs> oh, look, most definitely. Like, life is so stressful these days. You know, people get home from work. Most people are on computers. The last thing you want to do is go and read something online on another computer again. Just so to sit down, pick up in a relaxed environment, a magazine and just slowly at your leisure just touch and feel something and flick through some something with amazing images and stories and, um, yeah. yeah. And they're good to keep in the car for, I find, I read magazines on a long car trip if I'm not the driver and then it, when I'm lying on a beach, as I was last weekend, middle of winter up the coast, I still want to read something. I want to just mm-hmm. flick through something easy you know, so yeah, there's definitely a place for them. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Yeah. So you've been in the industry for over thirty years. What you would have seen the most incredible changes in the snow industry in thirty years? Tell us, tell us about that, <laughs> if you can. Oh, if you can. <laughs> for sure, it's really funny how I got into the snow. Actually, I grew up as a surfer on the beach. I had my board, my wetsuit. Um, never had any money. I used to go and find golf balls and sell them local golf course to buy my first wetsuit and board and then um, love it. And then the guy who I was I had a local sponsor, a surf shop company, surf shop brand and and the owner said, Come on, hurry, we'll go down the snow and this is when I was sixteen and uh, I went, Oh, I d I, I don't know, I you know, cost too much money. He said, Come on, come on. So I went down Perisher and um, I walked 15 yards up the, up the slope, 
put on some skis, came down, did the snowplow, stopped, and I thought, oh, God, that was fun. <laughs> uh, then, so then I jumped on a ski lift and went to, to the top of the mountain and came down, I think, I hit every rock and tree along the way, but I'm sure I was the most stoked skier on the mountain. And um, at the time, I was an electrician, electrical apprentice up in the power station at Munmora, Central Coast, New South Wales. And um, um, I finished my trade. I did three quarters of the way through an engineering certificate and I thought, no, this isn't what, what I want to do. So I threw it all away in the short term and uh, went down to Threadbows a Cleaner to put my head down toilets and wash windows and uh, um, got one run up the old, yeah, got one run over lunchtime up the old Krakenback chair. It was a double chair at the time and it took like 20, 18 minutes to get up or something like that. And then I got one run, then had to go back to work and I was, you know, I was all stoked and fired up. Um, and then look at what's happened since, Old double chairs, you know, like quad yeah. chairs, six-pack chairs. Um, <laughs> tickets, you know, we used to get there and you used to sort of tweak your, your, your day tickets and with a bit of texture and get to ski an extra day at half price. You the can't swap the jacket trip, yeah. Swap the jacket, yeah. And it's hard to do that these days because um, everything's, um, you know, you go through um, – the, uh, electronics, like the gates. The, the electronics in it. And the person can get there and they can see the photo of the person who's supposed to be wearing the jacket. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and, and if it doesn't, well, you know, you get turfed off the mountain. Um, yeah. And there's, you know, there's a lot more rules and liability. And, um, Were you, you skiing Jackson back in those days? When did you go to Jackson? Like what was your first trip? Um, I went in Jackson in 92, 93. No. And um, yeah. it was, boy, that was full, like it's still a cowboy today, but crikey, was a cowboy back in those days, yeah. you know, Jackson Hole Air Force. And um, I was in a fortunate position where I got to work with two of the local legends in a massive storm and they've gone, and they, they sort of chuckled because they were getting paid to go out and shoot with an Australian surf photographer in, in a, blazing storm but uh they didn't expect anything from it and next year send a mag magazine with 10 page feature and they've just gone whoa how the hell did you get those type of photos and it ended up it was the tgr boys teton gravity research boys and that was the the year after um so straight away straight away they said harrow you're coming with us so i was their first senior photographer and then I got accepted into the Jackson Hole Air Force. They, uh, a couple of those guys took me under their wing and then, you know, I'm in the backcountry doing crazy stuff with them and then we're up in Alaska and I got top 20 in the world in the World Extreme Skiing Championships and I was one of the few photographers who could ski, ski. in those places with those guys and then we ended up spending the next, you know, next dozen years opening up Alaska and Greenland and... Um, Greenland, oh my gosh! Yeah, so all the, all those pioneers of the day, are, I'm very fortunate to be in that tight circle, and yeah, that's a major draw card of going back to Jackson, not just for the skiing, but just to see all those people, and you know, I speak to them every day, which is really cool. And the same thing with the big waves. Um, 
yeah. very fortunate that on a daily basis I get to connect with, you know, my family in Hawaii or California or South Australia or, you yeah. know. Yeah. yeah. Very the humbling. communities and the surf communities, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Like really, I mean, we, I was back, back in the day a ski instructor for 10 years and I still, some of those guys that when I was 19, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20 to whenever, they're still my good mates today. And if we get, if I, when I get to Canada or if I get to, you know, New Zealand, I'm like, hey, how you going? Like it, you just can't feel that, stop those memories and those times of just community. Oh, look, you 100%, you hit the nail on the head, community. Yeah. Family community. Yeah. Family, yeah. Because yeah, we've all experienced something. Together. Because you're all alone when you kind of go there, you know. You're all, you, you, you're there and you live in little tight quarters for three months. Like I did Charlotte Pass for 10 years, so it was tiny, tiny. Wow. Really <laughs> tiny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's for talk. Yeah, oh, yeah, that was, those are the days just quietly. Hold on, my mum's listening. No. <laughs> but, um, in terms of Victorian ski fields, because Tanil and I uh, ski New South Wales ski fields and we've expressed a curiosity about Victorian ski fields and actually um, I'm actually going to Hotham this season. Uh, why did you choose Bulla to have your gallery or why what why boulevard hotham or okay that's a really good question i I started in threadbow in 86 and um obviously we you know or we met people from around australia around the world and um i we asked people you know where should we ski in north america in in victoria if we've got two days off you know where, where, where can we blast down to and um the first trip in 87, we just did a road trip. We called it, we had this group called TAS, Threadbow Assault Squad. So we jumped in two or three cars and went down and hit Hotham and Falls and had a great time. I fell in love with Hotham. And uh, I actually mentioned about Buller. I said, what about Buller? And a few people were, nah, nah, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. I went, oh, okay. So I didn't think about it again. And then um, 88, um, I got the chance to work down Hotham. Um, I loved that. That was great. And then I went back to um, Threadbow because coming from New South Wales, all my friends were in Threadbow. And in Victoria, it's like, you know, it's south of the board. You felt like a Mexican. It was really funny. Um, then I had the chance to go over to Wanaka. So I spent 10 years there, came back to uh, Threadbow and in 2003, Steve Lee rang me up. He said, oh, hello, um, come down to Buller. And I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, there's a big storm coming in. And I said, well, there's a big storm here in Threadbow. He said, no, nah, no, nah, come down, come down. So I got dropped off at 11 o'clock on the doorstep of Nick Reeves, who's the, one of the lifts manager at the time. And, um, and he goes to bed at 8 o'clock at night because he's up at 5 in the morning. And he said to Steve, what are you doing dropping media off on the doorstep? Okay, tell him to be ready at half past four. So <laughs> half past four in the morning, I get up, I'm downstairs, uh, hear a knock on the door, I've got a towel around me, I open the door, scratching my head. He's standing there with a towel around his waist and scratching his head and we looked at each other, ne- had never spoken a word, not even on the phone, and we laughed. So straight away that was going, wow, that was in a defining moment and then um 
went up the mountain and it was storming and Steve and Nick took me out and I was skiing terrain, which I went, really? Australia has terrain like this? And admittedly, it was a big snowfall and I skied stuff, which I didn't, had no idea existed in Australia. Inbound? Sorry? Inbound? Inbound. Yeah, Yeah, this is inbounds. Yeah, wow. It was absolutely phenomenal. And then as it turns out, look, you do need decent snow conditions to ski a lot of that terrain, but um, I spend winters in the snow, so you know you're going to get a dozen of those days a year. Um, So, and after shooting their marketing, um, all their marketing campaign for several years, um, I fell in love with, um, I got blindsided by the love of my life, Rilla, and she worked in marketing. And uh, so we've been, yeah, we've been down the resort for 10 years. I took a couple of years off when um, I was making a surf documentary. But the reason why I'm still in the snow industry, particularly in Australia, is because Buller, not only for a photographer, it's the most gorgeous resort in the world. I mean, gorgeous resort in Australia. And, you know, I put it on par with Wanaka and, and the Alps with the backdrops you can get because you've got these 360-degree views. So from a photographer, that's a photography standpoint, that's amazing. But one of the biggest um, things with the resort is it's family-owned. Yeah. I mean, the Grolo family are so supportive of the snow industry and its athletes in the development. They don't have to answer to shareholders. You know, if you look at every other ski resort in Australia, especially what's happened with the recent takeover of a couple of them, yeah, it's all about money and sense. Well, money and no sense, really. And yeah. uh, the, 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 what the Grolos have done here is phenomenal. You don't see this. The only other places in the world you see this is like a Jackson Hole where it's owned by a family. You yeah. know, they... they you know, they're, they're, they're obviously they're smart with the money, but they're not prepared to spend that little bit extra to make the experience for a skier, a snowboarder, that much better. And, look, a lot of skiers and snowboarders, all they want to do is whinge. You only hear the things on social media about whinging moments. Those people have no idea what going to running a resort is. But, um, True. Yeah. You know. How um, much to sell out, do you really? Like, I mean, we're in the middle of the buy-up from the Vales, the buy-up from, you know, everywhere else. But me growing up at Charlotte Pass, that's that's still family-owned as well. So I kind of get, you know, and you, it just hurts when your soul gets sold. <laughs> so it's nice. Yeah. I didn't know Buller was still family-owned, so that's kind of really interesting. And and to be honest, if it was com- uh, as commercial as the bigger, the bigger resorts, I wouldn't be in the industry. I wouldn't worry. You know, I've got better places to... You would have left have Australia. Better things to than, 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 sorry. Would you have left Australia and gone maybe back to? Um, yeah, I'll probably. I'll probably be in Indo, you know, um, <laughs> or, or I'd probably be in Lake Lake Ohau in New Zealand. Like I, I've spent ten years in Wanaka. I love Wanaka. It's 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 beautiful. Trebilcone's a great mountain. So is Cadrona, but it's got very commercialised now. But there's a little gem of the ski field, and I can't believe how many people still don't know about it, called Lake Lake Ohau and Lake Ohau Lodge. And, you know, it's only an hour and a half north of 
uh, Wanaka and Queenstown, one half two hour drive. You've got this little. Um, they will now. Uh, lodge, they cow <laughs> lodge with that Mike and Mike and Louise Nielsen have owned for many years, and that is like family. It's got a double chairlift, serves a valley with fun intermediate skiing. Then you've got short little hikes to this amazing, more you know dramatic terrain. Uh, you've got Mount Cook just an hour up the road, and you can jump in a plane really cheaply and stay in a hut up there. And um, yeah. yeah, so I guess if I wasn't in um, in Buller, I'd, I'd, I'd be over there somewhere. Okay. Are you still involved with the uh, backcountry programs for Hotham? No, I haven't been involved with backcountry programs in Hotham. I have. I've actually created in association with uh, um, a number of the world's leading uh, alpine guide, guides, heli-ski guides and athletes, uh, we created a program called Mountain Safe. Oh, Mountain Safe, yeah. I did yeah, Mount, Mount, Mountain Safe. So we're supposed to go full gangbusters with that this year and COVID-19 just uh, sort yeah. of nipped that in the bud. But in the last... Last week, I've had four people saying, "How are you going to put on mountain safe this year?" So we are planning on doing something in September. And I mean, backcountry—the biggest growth in the sport is in the backcountry. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, most Australians, most of the twenty-five thousand Australians who go overseas skiing, have zero knowledge of the backcountry, and it's not. It's not always their fault, except there's enough signage and awareness out there saying, you know, if you don't know, don't go. Um, there's some fantastic courses out there, um, avalanche courses, but a lot of those are expensive and time-consuming. And and what we've found, the, particularly with the Australian market, you need just in a basic understanding and awareness of what you're going into. So in half-a-day program... We do an hour uh, PowerPoint with the uh, um, instructor, you know, a qualified um, mountain guide, ski patroller, along with a mentor as an athlete. So you learn the basics nice. in the classroom and you go out for an hour, an hour and a half, and you, you get to physically use a shovel, beacon, probe. And then we spend the next two hours skiing out on the mountain, identifying train traps and um, just um, knowing how to um, understand, realise what the risk is, what controls you can put in to mitigate that risk and then making a plan. And if you don't know, you don't go. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. It's definitely yeah, a negative because yeah. Australians kind of tend to go, oh, she'll be right. We'll go over there. That'll be. It's just side country, but it's you know, it's it's the weather changes so fast, especially in the Australian Australian Alps. And, and it's going to be interesting to see this year, right, with yeah. uh, everything that's going on, and you just see all the online forums and people. This is going to be interesting at the back. It is. It is. It's. Um... Yeah, it's, it's getting scary. And Australians getting are getting a bad, a bad reputation. You know, they're going overseas and skiing out of bounds and ski patrol and, and locals are finding them without their gear. And, and, and you know, um, the, these people are nice, but they're stern when they're talking to Australians and Australians just sort of 
can typically just fob it off. But what the what Australians don't realise is they they could be skiing to a place which is cliffed out, yeah. or even worse, they're skiing above terrain. It could be a thousand, you know, half five hundred metres above other people which are skiing down below. You yeah. know, so it's not they're not just putting themselves at risk; they're putting people below them at risk. It's just an understanding. You know, and it, it it's simple. It, it's a great op, it's a great education to learn the basics, and then when you go to a ski resort, you just you know you talk to a patroller, you talk to a um, a, a local, you 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 yeah. read the avalanche forecasts, and uh, you, yeah. your riding partners yeah. are really important. I think if you're going to go out, you need to be quite on it. Like both Emma and I have just done our abs ones, so really basic yeah. stuff, but you learn so much about that and like how lucky we both have like myself I've been been to survive that I've put myself in these stupid situations you know and now it's like just by doing that you just go wow it's re- and I and I'm I do a ski tour company to Canada so that's yep. part of my big ski tour is to get teenagers to do these avalanche courses as part of the as right. part of the, because they're going to be 19 soon. They're going to be eight. They're going to go off on these worlds by themselves soon. And I want them to actually be aware, like you are, which is great. So I know that we can send them to, you know, down now to make Mountain Safe if they're in Victoria. And do you have any programs in New South Wales as well, or do you work with the guys in New South Wales? Um, not, not yet. It's 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 just young. Um, Love it. Where um, I have uh, Cohen Beanie Full. You know, he's probably Australia's most recognised big mountain guy. Um, he's made a name for himself, a really respectable name in North America as as a skier and safety conscious. And um, he's, I guess, at the end of his competition career, so he's looking now to further his development in the industry. So he's going to be managing Mountain Safe moving forward. And we are just talking yesterday about the course for this year, and um, so the plan for that is in September and we'll let people know as, as that comes out. Yeah. yeah. Well, next time uh, we'd love to have you back because uh, we've got so much more to ask you. I'd love to ask you about your work with Red Bull and more about the Teton Gravity Research and Discovery Channel and Fuel Technology. So we really would, you, I know you're always really busy, but we'd love to have you back if you have time. So thank you oh. so much for today. Well, thank you, and I'll always make time for sure. Just the last two weeks got a bit crazy, but yeah. yeah no, well, and, uh, look, we'll have to wrap up on our question that we always ask: Where's your favourite place to ski in the world? Alaska. Alaska. We're going to get there, Emma. We will. <laughs> we will. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Loving the Snow Life with Emma and Tanil. If you've learned a handy tip or two, then happy days. To catch all our episodes, subscribe on iTunes. It's free. Head over to www.lovingthesnowlife.com.au for more info and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Loving the Snow Life. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, then email us on our website. Thanks to everyone who leaves a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to share our episodes on your social media.